Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen with David Gura. Daily, we bring you insight from the best of economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Good morning, everyone. Bloomberg Surveillance Jobs Day in 29 minutes. We will bring you the data. We'll go beneath the headline data. We are fond of doing that. And what we're really fond of is on a three-day weekend, four-day weekend, whatever it is, David Gura, five-day weekend. On Labor Day weekend, we're pleased to announce that William Gross and Jim Glassman are here. They're here. Okay, good. Our people talk to their people. <laughs> and it's very – we're really honored to have Alan Kruger with us earlier. James Sweeney really doing well from Credit Suisse with some terrific perspective. And then to have Professor Kruger from Venice, Italy, and to have uh, Bill Gross join us in a bit from Janice Henderson is great. Uh, but we will begin with James Glassman of J.P. Morgan. Jim Glassman here, and I want to frame August and wrap it around your travels, which is – Everybody's telling us there's a job shortage, job openings are there, this, that, the other, wage growth. We'll get into all that. And yet there's 12,000 people lined up to fill cardboard boxes at Amazon. And the good thing about Jim Glassman is you're on the road, not in the three zip codes that straddled James Diamond to me and David Gura. (laughs) What have you witnessed on the road about a fully employed America or one lined up to fill cardboard boxes at Amazon. Yeah, I mean, there are pockets that are uh, struggling, uh, but there are also pockets out there that are just off the charts. Colorado, Nashville, Austin, West Coast, East Coast, we're doing fine. Actually, everybody is doing pretty well. There are a few areas that are slow. I think the problem for a lot of workers is there's just been so much change in the workplace. There's a lot of automation. There's a lot of innovation. The jobs that used to exist 10 years ago don't exist anymore, so you can find jobs, but the problem is they're not paying the same thing unless you can skill up. And that's really what the, our, our clients are telling us is they, the, the kind of jobs they need don't have the, they don't, they don't have people with the right skills. Well, to me, that's music to my ears because that tells me that something's changed over the last 10 years. There are new opportunities opening up, and we just got to figure out how to get people steered there. I think a lot of community colleges are very focused on this. If you go to Miami-Dade, all the very big community college systems, they've got a lot of programs for training people with specific skills. And I suspect that we will figure out, and in another few years, we'll probably not hear as much about this story because I think people are figuring out that there are things out there. You just got to take the initiative to do something about it. We were having a conversation with James Sweeney from Credit Suisse a little earlier just about what constitutes a skilled worker. How much agreement is there on that? What what, uh, we define a skilled worker as? Well, I don't know. You've got to ask, you know, you need people who know how to monitor computer systems yeah. and understand what what it is, the, all the stuff that's been mechan- mechanized. It's, they've got to understand the process there. So you'll get a different story depending on where you look. I think what people tell you is you need people who learn skills that we used to learn in shop class in high school. You've got to have some math skills. You've got to know some programming and honestly, you know, I, when I think of it, I think of when I turned my car into the local gas station to do routine maintenance, I, I took it in the other day. They say to me, can you come back in about three weeks because our mechanic is out of town. He's on vacation. So no one, no one there, you know, just maintaining a car has gotten much more complicated. And you need to know how to read the diagnostics and understand the way the car is working to make sense of that. So, you know, my suspicion is that it's not, it doesn't take an awful lot of training. The problem is it isn't really in any one business's interest to do. I mean, if, if you spend the money to train somebody up, uh, then they become marketable and they jump. They go somewhere else. So this is the role for the public sector and for the community colleges. Yeah. It's a partnership that you need. I want to ask you about that because I think this administration has been keen to point out the, the, the parallel they'd like to see between the, the U.S. training system and that in Germany or other parts of, of Europe. And there it seems like you get an apprenticeship uh, yeah. A company finances that in part, or at least in part, and then you stay with that company. How do you incentivize somebody who gets those skills to stay? How do, how do you make it so that that person doesn't have those marketable skills and wants to leave? Well, you know, when you look to South Carolina, North Carolina, where the uh, European auto industry has come in, you see a lot of that going on. And I think, you know, to some extent, 
you're not going to lose people if, uh, you, if the skills that you're learning are specific to that company. But the way you do it is you offer benefits to you know, tie people in. And I think people, honestly, I think you just, uh, people appreciate uh, the opportunities to develop, to, to, to know something about your company and to learn those skills. I don't think people are that quick to jump. A lot of folks, you know, we're, they, they, they sort of, we like to stay in our comfort zone. If you give me opportunities in my comfort zone, I'm happy to stay there. So yeah. I don't think this problem is as big as you might think. Right. It is for the guy that learns the welding. Because if there's a hot-paying job up in North Dakota and you teach me how to do welding down here, I'm going to go mm-hmm. if, if I can get three times this the This is really, I was going to go another angle. Well, this is what you do, folks, with Jim Glassman, frankly, with Mr. Gross as well. You got something in your head to go to, and they say something so damn smart, you got to go the other way. Let's go the other way on welders. I read a paper out of Iowa, University of Iowa, Iowa State. I think the wrestling school, Iowa State. And it was about, it's not about welders. It's about really good welders, average welders, and welders that are a joke. Now, let's take that across the entire economy. The excellence and the demand for jobs is because employers only want the best flight attendants, yeah. the best radio announcers, the best welders, right? Yeah. And you don't get that with the first guy you hire. This is something you learn on the job. Is it different now than it was when you were at Northwestern with Mr. Gordon? I don't think so, because I mean, I didn't know thing. anything when I started a job. And we know that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And, and you know, it how'd takes, you get it hired? I, God knows. <laughs> <laughs> you have a, a great note out where you're looking at our sense of worry about this this economy. I want to dig into that a little bit, if if I could. There's a lot of uh, apprehension here, just sort of about where we might be headed if we're on the precipice of a recession. Uh, this, the sense of doubt as well, that things, uh, at least with regard to the economy, aren't as good or can't be as good for as long as we think they, they will be. How do you process that, Jim? Well, you know, it's always the case when you're coming out of a really bad time, people are always worried, overly overcautious. Then when finally we wake up and we realize, here we are, eight years, this is the eighth Labor Day of recovery from the Great Recession. When you realize you've done a good job recovering, then you start to worry, oh my God, how can this last? And I think, you know, it's legitimate. It's cyclical. It's it's legitimate to think about this because our history books tell us that these recoveries last six to nine years and, and for some reason... We, we trip up and fall and fall back again. But if you look at why that happens, inflation problems, financial excesses, I don't think there's anything, anything to worry about, frankly, myself. I think we've got a very good chance that this recovery, now that we've recovered the losses from the recession, we're going to – the longevity of this cycle is probably going to beat anything else we've seen. And so, you know, it's natural to worry. I, frankly, I'm happy when people worry because that makes me think – expectations are low. I like to hear people worry. We economists should worry when businesses stop worrying. And that makes, that's what makes me nervous. When you look at what might be leading to that worry, is there an indicator that stands out to you as something that is reasonable? You look at the market, say, and how high the stock market is, is for instance. Is, is that something that gives one cause for, for, for concern? No. Stock market, to me, is just a symptom of all this stuff. Uh-huh. The thing that I would worry about is if I started to see inflation problems. Well, I don't see that. Those are the things – that is the number one thing that always trips us up because that forces the Fed to, to step on the brakes, and we tend to overdo it, and often that sets the stage for a new downturn. The other kind of thing that we've been seeing, financial excesses, real estate – go back 10 years, real estate values were 30% above what we've ever seen before relative to income. There's nothing like that out there. Only, you know, maybe in the commercial real estate sector, you could argue that some assets are yeah. a little pricey. But, you know, that's, that's something that can correct quickly. This is not like the real estate problems we saw last decade. The employment, employment, employment to population ratio has been growing women's, you know, jobs and all that from yeah. the 60s up to 64% of Americans employed. Yeah. Then we cratered down to 58%, dragging ourselves back to the late 1970s. We've come back, but we're nowhere near where we were. Do you have a hope? That we normalize, it's sixty-two percent from the present. I don't 60%. think so. Because you know, I don't think we'll ever get there. Uh, because right now, for the next ten years or so, we've got this massive wave of people who are approaching retirement. Why are you so, looking at me? I'm, not, I'm, <laughs> I'm looking in the mirror. We've got twenty million people who have turned into gone into the fifties or sixties oh, or really? beyond. Those guys don't want to work. And, and, oh, you know, really? They, no, I don't think so. I mean, they may be forced to, but they, they want to retire. And what you notice is when people get to about 50 years of age, they start 
scaling back. Oh, really? Yeah. <laughs> Maybe you and Keep I. Keep it up, Dr. Yeah. Glass. It's the outlier hour here. You know what I, mean, I suggest? You're looking at a massive demographic is, thing. Here. David, I, I really suggest to smooth this over with one of our best guests. Is Dr. Glassman yes. should join us for a beverage of his choice on my Grand Banks there, down on the East River. <laughs> it's the 48-foot Grand Banks, Jim. It's over near 34th Street. It's called Tuition. Tuition. You'll be able to uh, yeah. see it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, and I'm, I'm making yeah. a joke here, folks, because I know that Dr. Glassman <laughs> is familiar with that yeah. uh, boat as well. We'll Continue with Jim Glassman, serious discussion on the state of the American labor economy. And then we link it together with Bill Gross next. Worldwide, coast to coast, Bloomberg surveillance from our studios here on Lexington Avenue at 59th Street, right across from Bloomingdale's in New York City. Davy Girl, what's New York about? It's about a justice with their picture on the wall down at the Federal Justice Building downtown where people become new citizens and last night in section 104 uh-huh. yankee stadium there she was in taking uh, in robe in robe i might point out in the judges chambers the judges chambers pretty cool there in honor of uh, one Aaron judge uh, yes sonia sinemoyer uh, in the bronx last night for that uh, game against the do you watch last night? I watched. A, I watched enough to know I wanted to keep watching, <laughs> but the, the three a.m. beckoned or two thirty a.m. or whatever it was. That's running. Anyways, a major shout out to a Supreme Court justice who got out with the people in right Very field nice. last night. Yeah, Justice Sotomayor. We're with Jim Glassman, who knows about this, and to speak of the justice's heritage, which is uh, Hispanic, we have a huge announcement today by the president on immigration. Potentially. Potentially, I yeah. should say. Yeah, yeah. Toulouse or Renipa, thank you so much for that perspective from the White House an hour ago. Jim Glassman, how does immigration fold into the jobs report right now? Well, uh, you know, the demographics, the U.S. demographics, has the working age population slowing down a lot. We've had very little immigration in the last decade, and that's why we're getting all this recovery in the job market with slow growth. Immigration is an important part of what makes the U.S. economy strong. And if, if the economy is doing better... And uh, we don't have the domestic workers to fill those jobs. We're going to see more immigration. So on a given 150,000 of non-farm payroll, 10 or 20 years ago, if if it was 200 or 220, was the Delta immigration? Yeah. It seems it seems that might be like we, fifty or sixty or seventy yeah. thousand. This, this is what's confusing everybody because we've never really, when we talk about the broad economy, we've never really had to talk about immigration because, or about yeah. demographics because whatever demographics was going on in the U.S., immigration would tend to fill the gap. If we had the jobs and we didn't have the local workers, we would we would draw people in. This is not true in Italy or Japan. Uh, demographics dominates, and they are, they're used to this story. We're having to talk about demographics because we've not been getting the immigration. And I think uh, if, if the economy does really start picking up speed, you got to wonder, when you're getting 200,000 jobs a month, where is this coming from? It might be that we're starting to see a little more immigration. Well, you go to Arizona. I mean, one thing you don't know, folks, is he's not just a radio star and television star. <laughs> Bloomberg, he lives in airports. When you yeah. go to Phoenix, what do you tell the audience of institutional and high net worth J.P. Morgan people? Is immigration good for Senator Flank and for Senator McCain? Yeah, I mean, I think everybody realizes, particularly in Texas, immigration is an important part of their economy. Arizona has a more negative view of this because of the social problems that this brings. I don't really understand it, but I think we all deep down realize that we are a nation of immigrants. And this is what's made our economy strong. I think the issue is more about illegal. And you know, we gotta, we got to solve this issue because uh, immigration can solve a lot of issues. And it's not just the people coming in. It's the kids. I see this in my neighborhood. The families coming in from India and Asia, they're obsessed with education. They drive their kids into education. It's the next generation that really brings the value to, what, you know, to the country. And we all know this story because our parents and our grandparents Mm -hmm. went through the same process. What can you tell us about the Republic of Texas? Uh, Our eyes are focused on uh, that state right now in light of the the devastating storm that hit it earlier uh, this week. We're talking about immigration, obviously hugely important to that state uh, as well. What's the – give us us some context here about the importance to the U.S. economy of the Texas economy. Well, it's hugely important because of the energy sector, right? But it's also a really diverse economy. It's a real entrepreneurial place and a real dynamic economy. Honestly, they're going to recover from this faster than people think because it's just a really dynamic place. 
and uh, it's an, it's important for the U.S. economy. It it was the big, it's the leading edge of the recovery because of the what's going on in the energy sector. You look at employment growth in Texas. It's doing over the last ten years. It's done better than anybody except for during North Dakota. But honestly, not many people want to go to North Dakota. So it's an important yeah. it's an important state. Healthcare is a gateway to the global to the to, to the global world. Its energy sector is pretty dynamic. It's pretty critical to the U.S. economy. Jim Glassman with us, and we'll continue. We'll go beneath the headline data here. Uh, David Gurr, we should say to our people because we're 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 full disclosure. There are technical difficulties. Yeah, this is, this is interesting. We're going to pull back the curtain here just a little bit. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, the data comes across the Bloomberg at 8.30 when those numbers are released, in part because uh, some technicians, some people within Bloomberg and other outlets are able to get those numbers first and input them into the system. There apparently are some technical difficulties across the board at the Labor Department preventing that from happening today. Uh, so at 8.30... We, you, everybody will go to the web to get those data from the Labor Department, and that's going to cause a, a bit yeah. of a delay here as we have to sort of parse through the numbers uh, outside of the usual framework that we get them in. Yeah. So it, it may be that we don't get the numbers right at 830. It might be a few seconds you, uh, afterward today. Could you turn around, David, and turn on the studio lights? Because yeah. we'll be here uh, worldwide on radio Working and Working our tan here in these we'll next do. few minutes. Yeah, <laughs> yeah i got to get the orange going on the skin. <laughs> you know, where's Mr. Boehner when I need him? <laughs> Uh, Futures up six. Dow Futures up 65. Jobs Day with Jim Glassman and Bill Gross. Stay with us. Good morning, David Gura and Tom Keene in New York. Bloomberg Surveillance on Bloomberg Radio on Jobs Day. We go now to our colleague Vinny Del Judice at the First Word Desk for the latest jobs numbers. Again, some quirkiness here this morning, Vinny. Yes, David. Job, uh, unemployment. Let's let me start over. Payroll growth slowed in August, 156,000 the prior month, an increase of 189,000. The unemployment rate, meantime, creeping up to 4.4%. Private payrolls up by 165,000. Looking at average hourly earnings, a sore point up just 0.1%. Yes, there were some problems. The government had a little trouble uh, getting the news out this morning, but that hit on time, just the same at 8.30, some computer issues. Again, the Labor Department reporting non-farm payrolls rose by 156,000. That's slower than the prior month. That is below Wall Street forecast. The unemployment rate up a notch, 4.4%. And average hourly earnings, I can't overemphasize this. This is a sore point, up just 0.1% in August. And I might add the July earnings increase revised down. I'm Vinita Judice Bloomberg Radio. Let's go back to New York. These are extraordinary numbers. We thank our team in Washington, particularly this morning, led by Brendan Murray, for getting this out. There were some technical difficulties, but we're acting normal with yields in. You Equity futures don't do much, David Gura, but yields in with curve flattening. Uh, it, it's, just a, 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 it's just a lighter tone to the data with the unemployment rate again up 4.4%. You know, you you look at moving averages, Jim Glassman, which I know you love, and again, this pushes against the moving average vector that we want to go up. 156,000 with negative 41,000 revision, that gets you down to 110,000-ish. Yeah, I think what you're going to hear from my community is don't trust the initial estimate of August because in the past 17 years, with the exception of three years, you've seen this August number get revised up by an average of 75,000 by the time it's all in. So I think you've got to be a little leery of this kind of stuff. Uh, People were saying, even when we saw the ADP number, they were telling you this. The, The information we're getting from the labor market is frankly quite good. The jobless claims trend has gotten lower. ADP is finding an awful lot of employment. So I think with these monthly numbers, you have to be a little careful, yeah. particularly August. David? Particularly August. Yeah. Uh, just continue to, to process what we're seeing here. How, how big a deal is that headline miss, uh, do you think, Jim? Uh, I don't think it's that big of a deal. I, I've got p- people were th- sort of in the 150 to 200,000 range, and the people who thought 150 were saying there is this serious, there, there's a significant bias that shows up in August, that things tend to get revised up 75,000. So don't be surprised if you see a 200,000 number out of this. Jim Glassman, thank you so much. With J.P. Morgan as well. And now on Bloomberg Radio, Bloomberg Television. Good morning, Alex Steele. Looking forward to the comments of Gary Cohn from the White House Lawn. I know, Alex, you'll do that here in a bit. Now we welcome William Gross of Janice Henderson. Our coverage of this jobs report, how it folds into markets, and particularly how it folds into a most interesting 
September in Washington. I guess, Bill Gross, I look at this and I see the revisions down in a little soggy report. It's once again putting a good month back together with another good month and another good month after that. We can't seem to get there. I think that's true, and I think August, uh, you know, historically has has been different and been a little bit weak. But nonetheless, um, you know, the wage revisions I think strike me the most, and and the point one in terms of the wage growth strikes me as well. You know, it, inflation, tom, uh, not job growth, dominates central bank thinking these days. And uh, while I think low unemployment percentages historically have led to higher wages. Uh, and inflationary pressures uh, and the fabled Phillips curve, which assumes this, um, I think it appears to be broken. And, and year-over-year core inflation, which is what the Fed looks at, is increasing only at 1.4%, and it's down from 2.1% yeah. only six, six months ago. And so I, I think the Fed is focused on wages and uh, certainly inflation uh, to the extent that wages well, are reflective in that. Let's and, try to, and, and this is a weak report. Let's synthesize Mr. Gross's outlook there, folks, into what we see on the Bloomberg. I see a 2.11% mm-hmm. tenure. Bill, in, in, in the angst of Korea... Five days ago, we got down to 2.09%. Steve Major over at HSBC says we can go below 2%. Do you agree that there's a set of news or a set of economic data that will give Janet Yellen a 1.99% 10-year yield? (laughs) Well, geopolitical, perhaps. Uh, You know, North Korea is certainly important. And, uh, you know, money moves to to quality and to safety when... uh, when global events uh, threaten. Uh, you know, global bonds have rallied 10 to 30 basis points over the past few months due to, in my opinion, not necessarily due to North Korea, but uh, unprecedented liquidity from the ECB and the BOG. Uh, BOJ. They've, they've written $1 trillion worth of free checks per month. It keeps investors happy and the economy's humming uh, for now. But uh, we see Japanese 10-year rates now are at 0% and bonds at 35 basis points, and that makes our 10-year attractive at 210, and, you know, perhaps it can go down to 2% because these other alternatives are extremely low and moving lower. Uh, Bill, we're making our annual pilgrimage to the edge of the fiscal cliff, it seems. We're going to be talking about the debt ceiling here over these next few weeks as Congress endeavors to to raise it, whether cleanly or with some other stuff attached uh, to it. Of course, there's the issue of government funding uh, as well. How much have you perfected your playbook with how to deal uh, with this kind of disaster? Again, we've faced it time and time again. Well, this one's extraordinary, and uh, the numbers uh, still are uncertain in terms of how much it'll cost. Uh, is it $100 billion? Is it more? Or is it a little bit less? Uh, over what time period does it occur? But certainly it, uh, it extends the budget deficit, and it's something that has to be reckoned with. How do they do that politically? Hopefully uh, Republicans this time sort of avoid it with a special type of uh, measure and then, you know, renormalize the budget uh, in the next few weeks as, as, uh, as we move along. But, uh, uh, you know, Harvey is, is very important and it uh, absorbs money and it absorbs credit and puts supply into the Treasury market. So uh, no doubt that that's important, as is the, the tax cut situation, uh, which presumably uh, will be addressed in the next two to three months. When you look at the debt ceiling in particular there, do you have any level of anxiety that uh, it's not going to be raised or raised on time? Oh, none at all. I, you know, I wrote yesterday, I tweeted yesterday that it was a sham. Um, you know, it's just a political maneuver. Congress spends money and, uh, you know, of course, the, the Treasury has to raise that uh, type of money. It's a one-two relationship. It's symbiotic. And uh, to the extent that uh, Congress uh, wouldn't approve their own spending, to me, is ridiculous. It's just a, uh, a political maneuver to get something. And I, I think there's no doubt that... Uh, uh, the U.S. credit is uh, solvent, uh, will be for as long as I'm uh, on this good earth, and uh, we shouldn't worry about it. <laughs> Bill Gross, you, you have been brilliant about the idea of fiscal, uh, financial repression, about you're going to get a low yield, and when you take out inflation, nothing's going to be there. All sorts of people we talk to are talking about better wage growth. It didn't happen this month. They're talking about vectors that move upward. Do you have any hope that America gets out of the financial repression you so well predicted? Well, not uh, typically out of financial repression, Tom, to the extent that you might define it by 0% real 
short-term interest rates versus uh, 2 to 3% uh, historically over the past 10, 20, 30 years. That's a huge gap, and I don't think that's going to yeah. be narrowed. I don't think central banks, not only the Fed, but the ECB and the BOJ, they can't raise interest rates back to normal simply because there's a lot of debt, an increasing amount of debt, and the cost to cover that debt if increased by 2 to 3%, not just with the government, the government can write checks, but with corporations, it's probably just not yeah, but, going to happen. And uh, go ahead. Well, no, I just don't, I don't want to cut you off, but this is so critical, uh, Bill Gross, because you live this. And you live this with a Monroe trader on your desk at a shop in Newport Beach a few years ago. And that is the deficit to GDP growing out. If we get back to what you and I recall in the days of Monroe Traders and early Bloomberg's, a 5 or 6% deficit to GDP, I would suggest respectfully bad things happen. Are we going to revisit that in the next 24 or 36 months? Well, it depends on the uh, the tax cut program. I don't think it's going to be that radical. I don't think uh, you know Democrats will uh, will permit that type of increase. But you know, you make a good point. Uh, the U.S. current account balance, which is reflective of this deficit, not one for one, but close, you know, has been uh, in deficit by three to four percent for the last 20, 30, 40 years. It's an exorbitant privilege that the U.S. has relative to the rest of the world. So I, I don't really see yeah. any pressure to reduce the deficit, despite the Republican rhetoric. I see it increasing, perhaps not to 4 or 5%, but uh, 2 or 3% uh, percent annually. And uh, the problem being, as I mentioned before, Tom, the interest rate, and to the extent that interest rates yeah. go up, I don't think they will or they can, then uh, the economy is threatened. We're going to come back with Bill Gross on radio, but very quickly here, Bill Gross on TV, do you believe in a 3% GDP American economy? I do not. Uh, it depends on productivity. Productivity has been less than 1%, close to zero. Labor growth is uh, less than a half a percent. Those two numbers together right. you know, produce real GDP, and uh, it's a 2% at max right. uh, real GDP. Bill, this again is about elasticities or responsiveness of market to economics, in that Mario Draghi has a plan, and his good people in Frankfurt have a plan, and we've had a massive move in euro. Trade-weighted euro, folks, is well out over two standard deviations back nine years strong euro. Bill, is this about the market, the euro vigilantes telling Mario Draghi what to do? Oh, I don't think so, Tom. You know, you know I was well impressed by the bond vigilantes in the 90s and I guess in the early part of the 21st century, but now I, I think central banks dominate. There's no doubt that they have conversations between the two, between the private market and the vigilantes and the central banks, and they take feedback from each other. But I, I think ultimately it's Draghi, ultimately I think it's Kuroda, oh. I, ultimately I think it's Janet Yellen, and um, so we'll see. And, and I, I agree with you, this, this news uh, on December is a little startling because uh, while Draghi has always been a dove, uh, this is a continuation of his dovishness. Do what we see from Carney, from Kuroda, from Draghi, does it migrate over to United States? If they get a Bill Gross sub 3% GDP, if they get any sense of a job uh, report like today and the tepid wage growth like today, does Yellen become like Draghi where we see articles from our Washington team saying the Fed will delay? Well, uh, perhaps, although I think the Fed's uh, fairly well committed because they've, they've uh, you know, put on the line a, such a small amount of, uh, of treasuries in, in terms of, um, you know, taking off the balance sheet. So I, I think there's safety there. Uh, but I do think that, you know, you know, central banks, especially the ECB and the BOJ, are uh, addicted to QE uh, and, and balance sheet expansion and low and negative yields. Uh, you know, Japan, as I've mentioned, has capped their 10-year JGB at uh, 10 basis points. It's now zero. Uh, and the ECB's balance sheet, uh, historically the world's most conservative central bank, has expanded its balance sheet via QE to nearly $5 trillion. It's, it's larger than the Fed's. And uh, so these are, uh, and I think there are legitimate questions as to 
how many bonds uh, these uh, central banks can buy before they effectively destroy the private market that uh, capitalism uh, requires. I want to ask you about Mario Draghi Communicator. There was this moment of uh, miscommunication with the market in central Portugal just a couple of weeks ago. Uh, he spoke in Jackson Hole, and uh, we were talking with Dennis Gartman yesterday. He was saying that uh, he couldn't quite figure out what it was uh, Mario Draghi was trying to lay out in that speech, at least at least initially. Uh, I, I wonder if, if, if you're experiencing similar difficulty interpreting what, what he has to say, and if you think there was maybe a missed opportunity for him at Jackson Hole uh, to talk more about the euro, to jawbone the euro a little bit. Well, I think so. And I think both uh, Draghi and Yellen uh, deferred in, in terms of monetary policy and, and simply shifted to regulation, which is fine, and a, tar- and a target and a legitimate target of central banks. They should have focused on that in the early part of the 21st century. But nonetheless, Draghi didn't tell us much. And uh, perhaps today's statement is telling us something. I don't know where it's coming from. But, you know, Draghi's very dovish. And, and to, to not criticize, but to compliment, I suppose, their economy's doing well. Uh, inflation is contained, although not as high as they want. And so, you know, you'd have to give these central bankers at the moment, in terms of cyclical results, uh, you know, somewhere in the B plus A category. But as I've mentioned in the past, over a long period of time, these uh, financial repressive uh, types of uh, uh, strategies have negative consequences on savers, have negative consequences Mm -hmm. on insurance companies, pension funds, and ultimately capitalism does not do well under these circumstances. Bill Gross, I want to rip up the script on the time we've got left. The number one talking point for me and David Gurr this morning, I don't know if you've seen it, Bill, but the essay in the Washington Post by a grievously ill uh, John McCain of your U.S. Navy. Bill Gross served in the U.S. Navy a few tours of duty ago. Uh, Senator McCain, Bill Gross, begs for bipartisan solutions in Washington. He begs for a return to the processes of another time and place. Can we get tax reform? Can we get infrastructure build out? Can we get Washington to do constructively in the present milieu, or do we have to get back to what we knew long ago? Well, I, I don't. I don't think we get much change under the current administration, to be critical, and under the current uh, Congress. Uh, let's address tax cuts. Uh, you know, the, the other day, uh, President Trump suggested that. Uh, tax cuts would be good for the middle class because uh, when corporations have higher profits, they provide for higher wages, et cetera, et cetera. Well, has that really happened over the past five to 10 years? Not really. It's a different geopolitical world. I I think tax cuts, um, while not the highest in the world, as uh, Trump claims, uh, you know, are about average for the world at about 25% when you include all of our, uh, you know, special situations. I, I think tax cuts will continue the fabled carried interest uh, policy, which is, uh, to my way of thinking, uh, one of the most ridiculous policies that uh, ever existed. I think we're moving towards a 22 or 21 percent average corporate tax rate. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do think these policies will leave the middle class even more behind. Yeah. And, and I do think ultimately that uh, universal income in the next yeah. 10 or 20 years Perhaps two different administrations is where we're headed yeah. and not to lower and lower tax cuts and supply side yeah. economics. David, does it sound like he's running for office? <laughs> <laughs> Newport Beach City Council. Very, very good. Bill Gross, I want to ask you about trade. We're seeing the resumption of, of trade talks in Mexico City uh, today, I believe, between the U.S., Mexico, and Canada. We've had a president uh, uh, use increasingly heated rhetoric about what might happen to NAFTA, talking openly about terminating that particular uh, deal. What, what would the effect of that be to, to say uh, we're going to scrap this now long-existing plan and uh, you know, I guess he hopes to, to rebuild it or start from scratch? What would the effect of that be as you see it? Well, it would be disastrous, uh, you know, 10 or 15 years on in terms of NAFTA and to to reorient it or to, uh, you know, to to, to cancel it. Um, You know, obviously, uh, NAFTA has had some negative effects in terms of American wages. That should have been expected. And to the extent that that's what Trump is trying to attack, you know, then fine, perhaps something else in terms of the, uh, the agreement could 
could take place. But uh, yes, uh, you know, Trump is art of the deal, art of the talk. Uh, to this point, art of the talk hasn't really gained us much anywhere in terms of legislation. But uh, I, I think it would be disastrous, and I think uh, at all costs it should be avoided. A free trade agreement between Mexico and Canada and North America is perhaps one of the strongest and most uh, productive uh, free trade agreements in the world. Bill, what are you doing with your portfolio? What is the growth strategy? September's the new year for business. Uh, everybody's struggle, struggling to find alpha in fixed income. What are you doing? What is the growth strategy with Janus Unconstrained? Well, Janice Unconstrained, uh, its objective, Tom, is uh, 4 to 5%. Uh, it, it's not a hedge fund. It isn't looking for double-digit gains. How do you do that in this type of world with uh, treasuries at 2.1% and stocks at a uh, near-historic P.E. ratio? Yeah, it's very difficult. What I've done over the past few months and few quarters is to, to sell volatility, not to buy it, but to sell volatility, to volatility and to assume the interest rates take the 10-year Treasury, stay between 2% and 2.3%. Uh, and if that happens, then, uh, you know, a 4 to 5% number can be, uh, can be garnered uh, based upon the premiums that an options seller can provide. And so that in combination with, you know, 2% yields on 18-month uh, corporate paper uh, produce a conservative but uh, very low volatility type of portfolio with a 4 to 5% return. Bill Gross, thank you so much. Greatly, greatly appreciate that uh, today. He is with Janice Anderson. David, what did we learn there? I, I, I'm still amazed that he can't get above a 3% GDP. Yeah, no, it's, uh, you know, I'm, I can tell, he said the draft jobs report was weak. And, uh, you know, looking at these data, one has to <laughs> sympathize with that assessment of it, uh, I think. And uh, it'll be interesting to hear what Gary Cohn has to say, what the White House has to say, how the president reacts to uh, to this jobs report uh, as well, in light of the numbers that we that we got today. Uh, and I was impressed also just by uh, how confident he is that uh, we're not going to see uh, much dithering when it comes to the debt ceiling, when it comes to uh, funding the government here over these next few yeah. weeks. I know there are a lot of uh, economists and strategists I've talked to have more anxiety this time around saying that the terrain yeah. is somehow different. I think anxiety perfectly captures uh, the path forward for the next 30 days. I, we haven't even got to October yet. Yeah. I, IMF meetings in October. That's what I can tell you about. You bought October. your ticket? right now. I, yeah, I, I think I'm slotted in. I don't know what we're doing. We'll, we'll figure out what to do. This is Gary Cohn, National Economic uh, Council Director. Gary, real pleasure uh, to have you with us. How do you interpret the number today? Are we sort of back to normal in the jobs market or is this the beginning of a weaker cycle? Well, thanks for having me. And before I get started, look, I just want to uh, you know, reach out to everyone in Louisiana and Texas and you know, remind all of your viewers, you know, all the tragedy that they're still going through and remind everyone that we at the White House you know, are not forgetting about them for a second and we're laser focused on what's going on out there. Look, on the, on the economic data today, you know, it, it, it's part of the natural growth that we're seeing in the economy. You know, if you look at the data we had this week, we had a GDP number of, of 3% this week. We had a jobs number that is still very good. If I would have told you at the beginning of the year or told you at Inauguration Day that we'd be at 3% GDP and 4.4% unemployment, you would have said, hey, those are great numbers. That, that, that would be an amazing accomplishment by Labor Day. Well, we're there. So, you know, overall, we're very, very pleased with where we are in the economy, where we are in the cycle. We still know there's a lot of work to do and a lot more upside, and the president's very focused on that. That's why we launched our tax agenda this week, because we think we can really grow the economy much further from here. Well, before we get to taxes, uh, you pointed the picture that jobs are consistently very, very solid. On the flip side, wages just aren't really going anywhere, 2.5% uh, year on year. And also, yep. inflation also really stagnant. Uh, what is the right monetary policy for something like that? So, look, look, we, we are concerned about the wages, and, and that has a lot to do with our tax policy. If you listen to what the president outlined earlier this week, he talked about our corporate tax system or our business tax system and how inefficient our business tax system is and how we really penalize businesses to be in America. And when you penalize businesses to be in America, they don't hire American workers. We need to get our tax rates down to be competitive with the rest of the world. When they get our tax rates down, we then compete for labor. You compete for labor 
by driving wages and paying more wages to get people to work for you. So we are concerned about wage growth. We do want to get wage growth back in the system. You're absolutely right. When I saw the numbers, you know, the first thing I looked at was the wage number, and it's been flat at two and a half for a long period of time. We need to put more money back in U.S. consumers' pockets, and that's what we're trying to do, both by wage growth and by, by, by tax efficiency. So, Gary, you kind of diverted my question there. So that seems that it's a fiscal policy issue, not a monetary policy issue. Do you feel monetary policy then cannot help with the wage inflation debate? Look, I think wage inflation has to come through demand for more workers at higher price. And the way we create demand for workers is we create a better operating environment in the United States. You create a better operating environment in the United States by making the United States more competitive. You create the competition by lowering the business tax rate and having businesses have to be here and want to be here in the United States. And that's exactly what the president laid out earlier this week. All right, so let's go to tax reform for a second. We've been hearing, I feel, a lot of mixed messages from the White House and lawmakers in terms of that next step. For example, uh, are you going to have to release additional tax details in a blueprint later this month? That's what we heard from Secretary Mnuchin uh, yesterday in some news outlets. So, as I think you're all acutely aware, you know, Secretary Mnuchin, myself, the leadership of the Senate, the leadership of the House, we've been working literally since November and December on a tax blueprint. We've met nonstop since then. The six of us have agreed on a outline, a blueprint, a skeleton. We agree on what we need to do for tax reform. We're now working with the House Ways and Means Committee and the Senate Finance Committee to really finalize what that blueprint will look like. I would say take a skeleton, put the muscles on it, put the skin on it. That's going to get released in the next in the next whatever weeks or months as those committees get together and finalize all of the details as the natural governing process happens. And that's going to start literally next week. So, Gary, is the legislation in the hands of the tax writing committee right now? The legislation is in all of our hands. We're working together. The, the group of six, the, the six of us will be in the White House with the president next right. week. We're going to continue to drive. Gary, I get that. But in order to move it forward, it has to be with the tax writing committee. So has you have you passed it off yet to them? There's a communal effort going on here. We're trying to, we're not trying, we are working very collegially together to get tax reform done in a way that everyone buys in in every step of the way. And that's exactly what's going on here. Ultimately, tax reform has to be voted on in the House and the Senate. So, yes, we're working with the House and the Senate to do that. Well, okay, fair enough. So you're talking more, we're all working together, but then you have Senator McCain coming out in the Washington Post with a very, very scathing review on President Trump. Um, He's saying we need to compromise, even if uh, we have to take something off the table that we didn't want, but saying that we have a president without any experience, he's poorly informed, he's impulsive, we don't answer to him, we answer to the American people. Doesn't stuff like that make the cooperation you're talking about impossible? It seems like... We have a lot of cooperation, a lot of momentum on tax reform. I think a lot of us understand the importance of getting taxes right, of simplifying the tax code, of returning more of people's hard-earned income back to the American public, not sending it to the government to spend, allowing people to spend their own money, simplifying the tax code. The basic principles that the president laid out earlier this week appeal to everyone in this country. Why shouldn't we get out of the way and allow more Americans to keep more of their hard-earned income? Well, Gary, I I don't think there's a politician that doesn't agree with that. I agree with you. I think there's a person in the world who doesn't agree with that, right? But then you have uh, Mitch McConnell, who Trump has said very uh, disparaging things on Twitter about. You have Speaker Paul Ryan, who's at odds with the president. Now you have Senator McCain coming out and do a very scathing uh, review. You might want it, but the how you get there matters. And doesn't the how you get there doesn't work anymore if we're like this in Congress? I'm confident that we're working well with Congress because I'm, I'm speaking to many of the people you just mentioned. We're speaking on a daily basis and we've got great momentum on taxes right now. Okay, so tell me what you're going to do in February. What job are you going to have? I'm going to be right here doing what I'm doing right now. Are you going to be in front of the White House or in front of a different building? I'm going to be doing right exactly what I'm doing right now, be in front of the White House with this beautiful new infrastructure being built out here. <laughs> we'll be working on infrastructure in February. Yeah, okay, nice segue, Gary. But I asked the question because a lot of heat has been made about the fact that uh, you weren't mentioned in that Missouri speech by President Trump on Wednesday in terms of those working towards tax reform. So there's questions about whether you'd want to stick around to even be considered for Fed chair now. 
I'm extremely happy doing what I'm doing. I have a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity, something that hasn't been done in over 30 years to reform the U.S. tax code. I passionately believe it needs to be done, and I'm one of the luckiest people in the world to be, have the opportunity to work on it. I'm really excited about what I'm doing. So you do not want to be head of the Fed? I'm really excited about doing what I'm doing. All right, let's wind up on Harvey. You brought it up in terms of extending your uh, condolences to those in Texas and Louisiana. Uh, Many say that Harvey could be the most expensive natural disaster in U.S. history. How much harder does the tax and budget debate become now because you have deficit hawks in Congress in the Republican Party? Look, we have to deal with the Harvey situation. it's, It's not a debatable issue. What people in Texas and Louisiana are going through is unthinkable, unimaginable. I've seen a lot of data. You've seen the data. We're analyzing it literally 24 hours a day here. We have to help the people. We have to help Houston return. It's just not a debate. So we're going to have to spend money. We're going to have to pass some incremental relief bills, and we're just going to have to do that. It's not a choice. So it's just part of governing. Like Part of running the government is dealing with unforeseen issues. We're going to deal with this, and we're going to move on. Um, look, the, the, the part that's going to be more troubling is it's going it's to have impact on a lot of the economic data. You know, the economic data that we just got and this unemployment data is probably the last set of clean unemployment data we're going to have for many, many months as we go through the recovery process and people go in and out of unemployment as they rebuild their houses and they rebuild their lives. We're going to have a bunch of data that not, maybe won't make as much sense for the next three, four, five months. So, you know, normalizing data for hurricanes and, and natural disasters is going to be more difficult for us to truly get a bigger picture of what's going on in the U.S. economy. Gary Cohn, real pleasure. Thank you so much for joining us. Gary Cohn, pointing to the infrastructure happening behind him on the White House lawn, U.S. National Economic Council Director. Alex Steele uh, on Bloomberg Television and Radio Worldwide with a lively interview with well Mr. Put, yeah. Cohn. <laughs> I, I would right. state uh, that that's the single most Gary Cohn I've heard Gary Cohn He's getting used to the job, Yes, is how I would put it. Yeah, mixing it up, I would say, tussling a yeah. bit. She asked him several times if he wanted to be Fed chair directly, yeah. uh, and he said repeatedly uh, he's happy doing yeah. what he's doing as, there as is, chair of the NEC. With all of this, there is on-the-job training. I, I, one of the things I always cite when I talk to college students about this is Greg Mankiw, the acclaimed professor at Harvard. And he, he talked to everybody the first three or four months he was – chairman of the President's Council of Economic Advisors, like it was a lecture, ACT-TED <laughs> lecture. And it took him a while to try to get towards the cadence that's expected yeah. of executive officials. And, of course, I think teaching that introductory uh, economics course to thousands at Harvard probably prepares you well yeah. for the, <laughs> the public speaking he, component. He, yeah. But uh, you're right. You're right. Yeah. There is a learning curve here. And, uh, you know, this is, this is a regular thing that Gary Cohn has to do now in this capacity. And I, I agree with you. I think yeah. he's uh, seemingly more comfortable. With the role. He, he talked around the news of the day, which is the McCain essay in the Washington Post, but that he did circle back and, and, and really address the delicacies of the administration, David, speaking to legislative leaders as compared to the president. That was an indirect illusion. Yeah, I'd say we, we've brought this piece up a couple of times today. If you read anything today, read that piece uh, in the Washington Post by uh, the senior senator from Arizona, John McCain, writing about uh, yes, the, the relationship between Congress uh, and the White House, but also just about the institution he has served for yeah. so many decades now. A, a very uh, important piece uh, in the Washington Post today. Usually when we get the points guy in, We chit-chat about banks and miles and all that. We will do that today because that's what you expect from Brian Kelly. But we must direct our attention to his real real, uh, abilities to synthesize all going on at George Bush Intercontinental and also Hobby, the historic Hobby Airport as well. Brian Kelly, uh, tell us your perspective on the damage to airplane travel in and out of Houston. 
Yeah, Houston, it's going to take a long time to get back up and running. Today, uh, actually yesterday, I think they had, United had 27 departures, and they normally have about 500. Mm-hmm. So we are way, way behind. You know, basically avoid Houston at all costs. You know, most airlines, actually every airline will let you reroute for free uh, or change your flight. So basically avoid Houston at all costs. But that being said, this weekend is still going to be a record weekend for Labor Day travel. So even if you're not going to Houston or through it, it, it planes are going to be packed this weekend. How do how do uh, airlines uh, change or or, or uh, express some flexibility when we see a natural disaster like this one? I imagine there are a lot of people uh, keen to get to the area to help out to to respond to the disaster. Do we see airlines accommodating uh, interest in doing that? Yeah, well, in terms of giving away free flights for relief help, some airlines will do that. I think on the opposite side, airlines, you know, because it's a huge stress on their systems and their customer service, so they'll let people rebook for free uh, to change their flights. Um, so they're called weather waivers. So anytime there's a storm coming, uh, most yeah. airlines, it behooves them to to let consumers switch their flights for free. Um, some airlines yeah. are more generous than others with, you know, the, the time frames in which you can change. Uh, Brian, let's get back to the, the business at hand, which is everybody's telling me airplane travel's cheap. I look on the screens. you got to be kidding me. I've never mm. seen fares as expensive as they are. Which way is it right now? Well, it depends on which cabin you're looking at. You know, coach fares are actually ridiculous. On the blog, if you go to the pointscout.com slash deals, uh, we've seen yesterday it was 294 round trip to, to Argentina. Uh, we've been seeing. What are you going to do? Put me in baggage? 200. <laughs> you know, Air Canada had a fair mistake uh, last week. 203 To Beijing, I saw this, yeah. And then also to, to Israel. So. Um, but, you know, even in the LifeLap business class, we had South America 648 round trip. So, you know, these deals, you gotta, you gotta act fast when you see it on social media. You always book the deal and then talk, you know, think about it later because airlines usually give you 24 hours to cancel. So don't try to round yeah. up 55 friends. You know, you just like book a flight and then, yeah. you know, figure out taking off work or whatever in the 24 hour safety period. But there are a lot right. of fair, fair sales. One last question. Be flexible, Tom. Who's driving the Points Guy bus right now? <laughs> Are the banks <laughs> driving the bus or are the airlines driving the bus? I mean, everybody's addicted to yeah. your world. We get what you do. You save <laughs> us some money. We hate you, et cetera. But who's driving the bus in September the of this year? Credit card companies are driving the bus. Actually, in September, Bank of America is popping into the rewards game. They're launching a new credit card. Um, the full details haven't been released, but they have confirmed um, they have this premium rewards credit card coming in September. And it, it looks really, you know, 50,000-point bonus. So we've seen, you know, Chase really upped it a year ago with the Sapphire Reserve. Amex has upped their platinum. I mean, the competition's at all-time high. So the credit card companies are in the pilot seat of, of the points industry, so to speak. Brian Kelly, thank you so much. And congratulations for changing everybody's life. Go to folks. You don't even have to do the charge card thing. You can just go and be in absolute awe of uh, uh, what Brian Kelly and others have wrought with this, this symbiotic relationship. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. David Gura is at David Gura. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.